Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here to answer questions people might have about their practice or about issues they're facing in their life from a Buddhist perspective. If you have any questions, you can feel free to post them anytime in the chat. Our volunteers will collect them and we'll start to answer them at 15 minutes after the hour. So for the first 15 minutes, we will uh, maintain silence and practice meditation together as an opportunity for people to ask their questions and for all of us to settle our minds and create clarity and presence that will help us to make this a profitable experience. So meditation together now until 15 minutes after the hour.
Okay, we're back. So from here on, we will be answering questions. You're welcome to continue posting them in the chat. From here on, anything that isn't a question in the chat will just be removed, not out of malice or anything, just to keep it clean. If you don't have any questions, just close your eyes and listen. Stay present. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Should one note distracted or the experience which one is distracted by? For example, an image that arises in the mind. Should I note distracted or seeing? Distracted is only useful when you're unfocused. It's a description of the state of mind that is not focused when there's many different things that pull your attention away. You wouldn't use it for just one experience. You would note that experience instead. How to note thinking while not interrupting my thoughts. I use my mental voice to think, but when noting my thoughts, I also use the same mental voice, so it interrupts my thoughts. Any advice? I mean, no, that's the, of course, the nature of the practice. The, um, it's not conducive for the practice to continue thinking, to, to pursue thoughts. So if you're practicing meditation, um, but you're following thoughts, then you're doing it wrong. You're, you're not actually meditating. So absolutely, when you note, you see that the thought disappears, just like everything else. There's no mystery behind that. That's, of course, what happens. So if you want to think, you should do it outside of actual meditation practice. I mean, you should note the wanting and learn to let go of your thoughts. Is noting aversion, laziness, or procrastination too vague? If it's an activity that hasn't happened yet, Disliking doesn't seem appropriate. For example, having to study, wake up from bed, take a cold shower, etc. Well, you dislike the thought. The thought of it arises, and there's a disliking, which is basically the aversion. Um, procrastination and laziness are pretty vague, but aversion is okay. It's just the same as disliking. You just have to appreciate that you're disliking the thought. How long should practice sessions be? Is there a minimum or maximum limit? I was wondering how many sessions I should do to cover two hours of practice. Well, for our at-home course, we recommend people to, sort of at the end where we're really pushing you to practice more than more than we would push for an, uh, an ordinary daily practice. We're trying to simulate a sort of... Uh, a, a, a taste of what it's like to do intensive practice, so we push you to do two hours. I think it's unreasonable to expect most people to be able to do that every day. Many people can, but the average person might be able to do one hour a day with a busy schedule. 
we should be able to do two, but it it is a considerable ask. But so when when we ask people to get up to two hours, we suggest them to do an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. That's thirty minutes walking, thirty minutes sitting twice a day. I think that's probably a good. I mean, if you're able to do that every day, that's that's great. I think that's what I would consider optimal for a person with a busy, a non-monastic schedule. Uh, but there there isn't a hard limit. Uh, rather than say that there's a limit, it's more about trying to find the middle ground between too many short practices and too few long practices. If you just do all of your meditation at once, then the rest of the day you have no uh, nothing to ground you in mindfulness. Whereas if you practice many times, you're you're never getting grounded either anyway. I mean, potentially you can, but you're not being challenged in the same way a long, a long session does. So two to three times a day, I think, is, is sort of a good happy medium. But if you're um, if you're doing very long sessions, then you might want to split it up into even four sessions. We ultimately don't recommend people usually, normally, to go over one hour walking, one hour sitting at a time. So that's the maximum, but that would only be if you're doing many sessions a day. Sometimes distraction arises so rapidly that I don't get to note it. I do only notice when it's already gone. How should I try to note this? And do you have advice on maintaining concentration? You can note things after they're gone. The noting is just a reminder to remind yourself that it was just an experience. So when you say, for example, seeing, you're just reminding yourself, hey, that's not good, that's not bad, that's not me, that's not mine. You're you're straightening your mind in regards to that experience, that it was just seeing. So uh, once you realize it's just disappeared, you just say seeing. You just remind yourself that was seeing so as not to pursue it in any way. Um, but as far as maintaining conversation, sorry, concentration, uh, that's usually a, a, a red herring. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of, of proper practice. Trying to maintain con- concentration is um, related to control and self and, and can be related to desire and uh, conceit. Conceit, feeling like you're 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 insufficient and wanting to to be a better person, that sort of thing. Mindfulness is about letting go. Ultimately, I mean, not clinging, stopping to cling, stopping to react. So, when your concentration is strong, then you note that. When your concentration is weak, then you note that. And your concentration does improve as a result, but. It improves without any of the attachment to ego or self or me or mine or that sort of thing. I made my mother suffer when she was alive, and now I feel guilty. How can I remedy this matter? Well, we're like the last question, we're not generally in the business of trying to fix things, trying to remedy things. So it's not quite the best attitude to have. Your better question is, how should I approach the situation? And the answer, of course, is to be mindful, to try and understand the situation. And the situation is mainly your guilt. What has happened in the past isn't, isn't the situation you're dealing with, but memories of the past, things you did, things other people did, those are happening in the present, and it's the memories that are occurring. So 
try and note them as remembering or thinking and note the feeling of feeling bad the guilty is basically disliking there's a, a sadness or a disliking an anger at yourself so you should not just note that as an experience there's nothing magical or mysterious about it just try and see it as an ordinary experience without reacting to it so there's nothing to fix really because it's not a problem it's only a problem when you make it a problem perceive it as a problem if you start to see it just as experiences it weakens and eventually goes away what is the difference between noting and focusing on your breath the the noting is based on the meaning of the word mind the word sati which we translate rather loosely as mindfulness but sati means to remember and the point of it is to uh, prevent the mind from extrapolating reacting judging making more out of something than it actually is which is possible through focusing um if you're very very focused then thoughts don't creep in and re and, and extrapolations don't creep in but you also aren't focused on the actual experience you you become focused on a concept on on a um a, a mental creation that is stable so you don't see the uh, nature of experience the idea the goal of of maintaining this state of not reacting and not extrapolating and not making more of things than they are is to see them as they actually are and so what you'll see as a result, the goal of mindfulness, the only real direct goal, is to see the three characteristics. It's what we call vipassana, to see impermanence, that the things that you uh, cling to as stable and uh, are not stable, uh, to see suffering, that the things that you cling to as uh, satisfying are not satisfying, and non-self, to see that the things that you cling to that are me or mine or under my control are, are not you, not yours, not under your control. And you won't see that if you're just very focused on an object. So, uh, be, because you become focused on a conceptual object, you know, that's the only way you can maintain that sort of focus. Now, there is a state of focus that comes from being mindful, um, but it uh, is not on an object. It is just a general state of focus based on objects that arise. So. I mean, I guess in in relation to your direct question, there isn't really a difference. The point is that, for example, the breath um, becomes a object of great focus if you are noting. And if you're not noting, it quite often slips into a state of... Um, focus on on a conceptual idea of the breath because breath itself is just a concept you don't experience breath what you experience are sensations so you experience sensations at the nose you experience sensations in the in the uh, respiratory system you experience sensations in the stomach and a diaphragm as it contracts uh, but those experiences are, are arising and ceasing and so mindfulness helps you to stay focused on those just stay focused not on one thing in particular but to stay focused in general 
on experiences as they arise. If you focus on, say, the breath, the uh, difference that usually that practically usually arises is that you're you're again not keeping up with the actual experiences, which will be more than just the breath. It will be uh, sensations in the body of pain. It will be thoughts. It will be emotions and all those things. So there's less of a direct and and unbiased, well, not unbiased, direct and and um, ultimately real experience. It tends more towards samatha if you focus on one thing, for example, the breath. How does one better deal with jarring experiences during meditation? I was stung by a hornet during walking meditation, and the feeling of pain, aversion, and reaction to get away seemed to arise all at once. Yeah, they, I mean, pain and aversion can arise at the same time. Uh, well, it's a little, maybe a little more complicated than that, but it's pretty quick. It, it's not a matter of figuring out which arises first or trying to catch each one as it arises. Just try and note what you experience, whatever's clearest. If there's more than one thing that appears at the same time, just note whatever's clearest. How does one better deal with them? Just through practice. But again, you don't have to note each and every single thing. The point is, again, this is the difference based on what I was saying in the last question. You're not focused on a specific object. You're trying to create a state of focus where you're able to experience reality, whatever might arise, without judging, without picking, without choosing your experience. Uh, and you're able to stay focused regardless of what it, what the ex object of experience is. That's sort of the basis of the four of Satipatthana. The Buddha enumerated four of them. And uh, you know, whichever one arises, note it. So you don't have to note everything. Should the mantra always be an adjective? No. That's not uh, not really relevant. The words are the words themselves are not implicit explicitly important or are not intrinsically, that's the word I mean, intrinsically important. So meaning which word you choose um, is not going to have any real significance. I, I mean, the point is that the meaning of the word relates to the actual experience, that it reminds you uh, that the experience is just that experience. So of course, you. the point would be not to note something that says good, like if you if you smell a good smell or see a good sight, you don't say good, 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 because that's the epitome of what we're trying to avoid. Instead, you say seeing or hearing as a means of uh, neutralizing that. When you note an object of experience, such as thinking or a state of doubt, is it still proper practice to then return back to your abdomen, rising and falling? good to note some things until they go away, especially those that are likely to cause reactions in you, like pain or pleasure, calm, um, or, or any strange experiences like seeing lights or colors or pictures. 
those sorts of things we recommend to note until they go away and also to note things like doubt until they go away but they if they should be pretty quick to disappear at least temporarily How can meditation practice help one overcome states of addiction, particularly to internet and pornography, which are too easily accessible today? Well, addiction is a cycle. There's the experience, and then there's the liking of the experience, and then the, the, the activity that leads you to uh, experience that experience uh, repeatedly. So you you might have a memory of something that you did before, like took drugs, let's say, in a very extreme example, took uh, heroin, let's say, and uh, then there's the liking of that or the wanting of that, and then there's the seeking out the heroin, which leads you to get it and experience and like it more. And that reinforces the habit. So it's a, it's this cycle of multiple multiple aspects of reality. It's not just the craving. So you can't just try and stop the craving or cut off the craving or deny the craving. The uh, approach used through mindfulness is to understand the experience because there's a part of that process that requires. Uh, delusion. It requires a sense of a, a sense of satisfaction, and not even exactly a sense of satisfaction. It requires a lack of clarity about how unsatisfying the process is, because drug addicts are are often very intellectually aware that what they're doing is stressful and suffering. But during the time that they 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 engage in the addiction. There is a lack of clarity. There doesn't have to be a sense that, yes, this is satisfying. That sense is is um, is is allowed by the state of darkness. There just is a sort of an animal state of of craving. Or there is the dark state, the the deluded or blind state. So, what you'll experience through mindfulness is just a greater clarity throughout the process. You'll see what, more clearly what you're doing to yourself. And so the key that allows mindfulness to work, how does it help, is that is this, this essential quality of the process of being unsatisfying, which is not generally uh, understood or appreciated. It's it's why addiction is often such a a, a mystery or such a, a challenge. It's because we don't see we don't appreciate this uh, nature of being unsatisfying dukkha, right? The, the 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 that clinging to things is actually stressful. That is a fundamental truth of reality of experiences as that no experience, no matter how it may seem to be satisfying and again not usually explicitly we don't we don't generally directly we're not we don't have a clear enough awareness during the time that we crave something to think of it as being satisfying that's more of an intellectual thing but during the process we just are so blind that we're unable to see how unsatisfying it is that's the point 
Mindfulness creates clarity, and with that clarity comes a deeper and deeper and deeper uh, appreciation of how unsatisfying the process is, which, uh, of course, has the opposite effect of attracting you to it. So the key is the clarity that comes from the vipassana, the, the seeing clearly that comes from from mindfulness. When you start to see more clearly, you just appreciate how unpleasant and unsatisfying the experience is. It's quite remarkable. It's kind of feels magical, like the the uh, appeal that that those objects held before it just is missing. And you can, in the beginning, you can wonder where it went. Where did, why is this object that I found so appealing no longer appealing? For things like pornography, you start to see what we really all know intellectually, that the physical body, the human body is quite unpleasant, smelly and, and greasy and, and slimy and, and, and just generally all around ugly. I mean, there's not, even the shape of the human body is not, appealing the, the the things that we create these perceptions of of some kind of uh, pleasure around the shapes and the smells and the sight and the shapes the smells the know, sounds sounds of voices and that sort of thing and the internet is the same the internet is just bright lights and uh, and and pretty colors and uh, flashy buttons and and so on, and uh, it's things like humor. I mean, the internet is a little more complicated, I guess, because of things like humor and interest, and some of it is wholesome because there are wholesome interactions on the internet, so it's mixed up. But again, you can ferret out all the addiction if you're mindful. You just see more clearly the uh, the the states that you're experiencing, and you start to see the stress and the suffering that comes from uh, the addiction. What is the physical aspect of a reaction, such as liking or disliking? If a reaction, like disliking, arises after an experience like pain, should the mind remain sent out to where the pain was? Well, you can note the pain, and that would be where the physical sensation was, but the disliking isn't, isn't, doesn't have a location. You just note disliking or liking. You have to note them separately. They don't have they don't take up space. If the self is an illusion, what moves me? Well, if the self is an illusion, then there's no me, so your question doesn't make any sense, basically. question which has been really frustrating me is what caused desire to arise in the first place what would why would desire just arise a long long time ago before this life i don't have answers about the past it's not really of any consequence if if, if any question is frustrating you then you should not frustrated frustrated because uh, I mean, I don't. 
think it should be something that frustrates you. That question, first of all, has no benefit to you. The answer has no benefit to you. Uh, nor does it pose any serious consequence to your practical um, spiritual progress as an individual. So it's just an example of something that frustrates you, and you should not frustrate it, frustrate it. You start to see it more clearly. Uh, just, just as I was saying, the, the clarity will help you see that it's just a fruitless endeavor. I wish to ordain more than anything, but would it be wrong for me to leave my home and to do so if I feel as though I would neglect the duty of a householder that my forefathers left me? Well, leaving home is not wrong in and of itself, so that part is no. Um, but it's also not wrong um, out of some feeling of neglecting a duty that people who are already dead left for you. That that, that plays, plays no part in answering such a question. Um, I mean, people do make good points about not abandoning living people. Uh, dependents, children, spouses even, who depend on you. Sometimes that is a good reason not to leave home. But uh, I guess I would like to gently pick on the first part of your question, because wishing to ordain more than anything seems tragic. Um, it's tragic that, that you should focus on that. It's not surprising or unique. I mean, it's if it, it happens that people fixate on ordination, but that's a big reason why we don't at our center uh, entertain questions about ordination from from new meditators, anyway, because uh, it shows a uh, a, a wrong. What's the word? It shows a shows that one is headed in the wrong direction, that one one is pointed in the wrong direction. Ordination isn't a goal, and maybe you're ex exaggerating, probably exaggerating, but I would recommend that you focus more on seeing clearly. And if ordination is a part of that, then great, but. If your focus is on ordination, too often it's the case where someone who ordains with that goal finds themselves unable to stay ordained because, well, they've reached the thing that they wanted more than anything, and that rarely ends well. Right? It's a cultivation of a sort of addiction of sorts, even just an intellectual addiction. And once you get that, then, well, there's something new to want, or there has to be, and if there isn't, then there's dissatisfaction and so on sense of not having any drive, any future goal. I mean, it's kind of trivial. I may be trivializing what you're actually feeling, but I think it's probably fair to say that you're, you sound too focused on ordination. If meditation is pure noticing and noting, 
How will I meet insight? Since I believe it will require some active thinking, should I journal my meditation sessions after the practice? Right. Um, no, it won't require some active thinking, but more importantly, insight isn't a, a good description of what we're trying to attain. Um, the word vipassana is often translated as insight, and I think that's misleading. It's not a good translation. The translation I learned when I first learned about it was seeing clearly. That's not actually fair because it wasn't until I learned Thai that I realized that's what they were actually saying. But once I learned Thai, in, in Thai they, they say hen jang, which means see clearly. That's what uh, we're seeing clearly. That's what vipassana means, which is different. So if you were to ask the question, um, if meditation is pure noting and noticing, how will I see clearly? And it should be easier for you to find an answer to, to see how that should, one should lead to the other. When you're noting, you will start to see more clearly. What we might call an insight um, sort of revolves around the idea of the three characteristics. You'll start to notice that the experiences that you're, you're encountering are impermanent, unsatisfying, and uncontrollable. And that will often be in contrast to what you used to believe about them, that they were stable, satisfying, and controllable. That could be labeled a sort of insight, but it's more just a noticing, a familiarity. Wisdom, wisdom at its core is nothing more than familiarity with reality. That's a good way of understanding it. We often think of wisdom in the West as something intellectual, but that's not the case. If you consider what you th what you ever hear about someone being wise, uh, when it turns out that they do have some wisdom, it's usually related to a familiarity with reality. And there are certain things we might label as insight that arise out of that familiarity, but they aren't really the main goal. They're more like um, signposts on the path than the path itself. How can I be more indifferent towards suffering without being gloomy? Well, gloomy is a sort of suffering, and I mean, you're kind of suggesting that when you are indifferent towards suffering, you, it leads to gloominess, but gloominess isn't indifference. Gloominess comes from some kind of attachment. That's the only way it can arise. If you're tr truly uh, equanimous, which is the same as indifferent, it's just that the word indifferent has some charged meaning in, in colloquial usage, but, but technically indifferent and equanimous are the same. It's just we talk about someone as being indifferent and still being gloomy, right? That's the kind of idea that you're presenting. But truly, when you are truly indifferent, then you can never be gloomy because you're obviously not indifferent. You're biased. You're partial, not biased. You're partial. Gloomy, of course, is some kind of partiality, a negative partiality against something, against your ordinary state. We usually use the word gloomy to relate to our state of affairs. It's like depression. When you relate with negative, with disliking towards your current state of affairs, you, f you consider that a feeling of being gloomy. But it's just aversion towards something which isn't indifferent at all. You wouldn't, if you were indifferent towards your suffering, it, you wouldn't, it wouldn't make you gloomy. So 
how do you become so indifferent or equanimous towards suffering? Well, you, you become more familiar with it. Because once you're more familiar with it, there's no trigger. You see nothing in it that leads you to think that, hey, I should be I should get I should dislike this. Disliking only can arise out of ignorance, delusion, darkness. Again, this state of not seeing clearly that allows for those useless, meaningless, harmful habits. You can never give rise to such a harmful habit as being gloomy if you saw clearly. If you if you were clearly observant as it was happening, you just you, you would think that would be ridiculous. It would be the last thing you would consider. Oh, I should get gloomy now. We only do it because of our lack of self, lack of presence. Is keeping reminders to be mindful throughout the day around you and in your phone as wallpapers and generally notifications uh, beneficial generally? I would say as a crutch. It's a good good idea in the beginning. I wouldn't rely on it because crutches can be distracting. And um, they make things easier. And one problem with making things easier is the complacency. It's like... Um, if I put training wheels, will I be better able to ride my bike? Well, in the beginning, yes. But it won't help you become a, an expert biker, cyclist. Or if you're weightlifting, it's not a very great example, but somewhat related. If you say, well, I, I'll just take a bunch of weight off, right? If I just take a bunch of weight off, that will make it easier. Shouldn't I just do that? Well, yeah, maybe in the beginning for sure. Make it easier on yourself, right? That's how this relates. Weightlifting. If you want to make weightlifting easier, take off the weights. If you want to make mindful mindfulness easier, well, there's lots of ways to do that. And just like with weightlifting, you shouldn't start off lifting very, very heavy weights. With mindfulness as well, this is probably a good way of describing why we do formal practice at all, because it makes it easier. So don't just go out in the world and try to be mindful. Train yourself. Formal meditation is a great way of being mindful. Uh, it's a great way of reminding yourself to be mindful. Right? Because you're in a state that constantly reminding you to be mindful. That's that's the big pull of it. So yes, as a, as a crutch, but eventually something you probably want to grow out of. Otherwise, it can become a a crutch. Um, what's the what's the what's the word for when a crutch becomes a bad thing? I guess we still call it a crutch. A crutch when you can walk. I guess is the point. What are some techniques for overcoming catastrophizing the future? So we don't try to overcome things. Um, it's maybe a good general description of what we try to do in the long term, but that shouldn't be your approach to things. Again, try to, instead of overcome your catastrophizing, try to understand it, to become more familiar with the process involved. See it more clearly. See it more clearly. That's the vipassana. We clearly, pasana seeing. Literally what it means. So if you haven't read our booklet, that might be a good place to start. If you want, you can try to do an at-home course that will help you not to overcome things, but to see them more clearly, because once you see them more clearly, 
those that are causing you stress and suffering, of course, will be the ones you abandon. You just see clearly that it's causing you suffering. Is there an awareness separate from the six objects of consciousness? Does it arise independent upon the six objects, or can it exist independent from them, for example, pure awareness? Or is awareness the sixth? Now, in that, um, in that enumeration, there are six kinds of consciousness. So the six objects of consciousness have six associated consciousness. Sight object has sight consciousness as its pair. Chak uh, eye consciousness, we call it chakku vijnana. Soto vijnana, ear, con ear consciousness. Gana vijnana, um, nose consciousness. Uh, rasa, is it rasa? No. What is, it? What is taste consciousness called? Rasa vijnana, I guess. No, jiva vinyana, sorry, tongue, con tongue consciousness. And I guess the fifth one is called kaya vinyana, kaya vinyana, yeah, body consciousness. And then mino vinyana is mind consciousness, means consciousness of a mind object. Can it arise, exist independent of those? No, consciousness always takes an object. Consciousness always arises at the same time as its object and ceases with its object as well. That's, that, I mean, the whole definition of what we call consciousness is the consciousness of something, the awareness of something. Vijnana, the word vijnana, nya is the root that means to know. We means something like makes it a special kind of knowing or direct kind of knowing. It doesn't. We doesn't have much meaning, except it does. It does have meaning. It just you can't translate it literally because it's not really special in any sense. But it is special because it's a specific type of knowing. But the root of vinyana is nya, which means to know in in regards to knowing. So by its very definition, it's the knowing of something. You can't know without a thing that you know, right? And, and, and that's why the we there, because it's not knowing intellectually, it's the awareness. That's In English we use the word awareness, being aware of something. Did the Buddha ever advise against having children? They can be an obstacle to practice, but they can also create a good practice of giving and creating more opportunities for human vessels for dharma. Well, there's one Pali phrase, and I don't know if it's actually attributed to the Buddha or not. I think I looked it up and couldn't find it, where, where it says uh, a, a child is a bond around the, the, around the neck. Putogiwe bariang hate dhanang bade. A child around the neck, a spouse around the wrist. Wealth around the ankle. But I don't know if that was um, attributed to the Buddha. I'm not sure that there's any. I'm, I, I, I think there probably is. I can't think off the top of my head of any place where the Buddha specifically says don't something like don't have kids. I mean, he didn't. 
<laughs> I mean, his don'ts were most often directed towards monks. And of course, there the answer is don't have kids for monks. But for lay people, it was much less don't do this, don't do that, because that's not helpful. It's not helpful to tell people in the world, don't do this, don't do that. It's helpful to, well, tell them how to relate to their children and to give them general advice that leads them maybe to live a life less related to having children. Uh, so the Buddha was, was probably, in most cases, above saying such things. But, I mean, it's pretty clear from his teaching. If he never actually said it, it's pretty clear from his teaching that having children might not be the actual important problem, but the things that lead to having children are very much against his teachings. So, like, for example, if you're pregnant, um, having a child is probably the Buddhist way to go, because, unfortunately, abortion does kill the being that is evolving in the womb. Um, but if you're not pregnant, well, the things that you do to get pregnant are are mostly unwholesome. And by mostly, I mean, well, you can be you can be sexually assaulted, of course, and then you may not have done anything wrong. So my point is just, I mean, it's kind of pedantic, but the point, the problem isn't the having the kids. The problem is all the stuff surrounding having kids. Because if it's just the functional aspect of having children, well, that's just like anything else. It's not ethical, ethically charged. But obviously what you're saying is intentionally having children. And that intention is in many ways diluted and related to lots of different complex problems, complex ethical problems. Can this practice be a hindrance alongside other spiritual practices? Well, it might hinder you from practicing those other spiritual practices. I mean, that's quite often the case, because if it's not this practice, well, then it's something other than this practice. And yeah, this practice has problems with lots of other practices in terms of being in conflict with them. Uh, but we would say, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, that those those sorts of practices just have a conflict with reality, and that's the real problem. So any practice that doesn't have a conflict with reality, we would say, is compatible. Any Any practice that has a problem with reality is going to have a problem with this practice. Bhante, we've come to the end of the hour and asked every top-tier question. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you for your help, Chris and Jim. Okay. I wish everyone peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Have a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.